welcome to the very first in a series of um, interviews. I'm very fortunate to be with Lynn Shepherd in Oxford in what seems to be the summer. Yes, just about. <laughs> <laughs> I just we can talk about your career as a writer, your life as a writer. I just wonder, do you do you mind this interview process? Do you mind talking about your books to some extent, your life? Um, I, actually, I love it. I'm a great <laughs> I know there are writers who, who uh, are quite shy about talking about themselves or about their writing, uh, but I've got very used to it now and I actually really enjoy doing it. So it's, uh, it's always a great privilege to, to be able to talk, to talk about yourself to somebody else. Uh, and if anyone else listens, it's even nicer. Okay, so uh, I hope you'll be saying that in, in about 45 <laughs> minutes' time. Um, this is really sort of a conversation about what it's like to be a writer as well as what kind of books you you write um I was wondering what, what is it is, is there an average day in in Lynn Shepard's writing life when you're when when you're hard at work actually writing a book as opposed to say researching and, and what what would it be like Describe. there is there is a, an average writing okay. day and the interesting thing about that possibly um is that the writing part of it is pretty much the same whether I'm doing my day job or whether I'm writing my novels uh, because I, I write um, for my bring bring home the bacon. <laughs> um, I, I I write for companies, uh, so I'm, I'm a copywriter. I, I write all sorts of things, reports, uh, websites, speeches, you name it. Uh, I'll, I'll basically do it. Uh, so that's a very different type of writing in some ways, um, and it's obviously done to deadlines in a rather more intense way than writing a novel is. So I might have a deadline that's only within the same day or within the same week or whatever it might be. Also writing very tightly to word counts normally and with quite specific purpose in mind specific audiences um, so in terms of uh, how my actual uh, my day and my week pans out regardless of what type of writing I'm doing whether I'm writing for the day job or the novels I'm pretty much at the desk by about 9, 9.30 I tend to go to the gym first thing because I find it helps <laughs> What sort of <laughs> things are you doing in the gym? Is just uh, well, just uh, quite a lot of cardio just, I think it's quite <laughs> useful to get your metabolism going actually I think that actually it does help it wakes you up um, and then I, I come back and I say I'm usually at the desk by about half past nine and I'll work through to about 12, 12.30 have a quick lunch and then back again uh, at the desk but I very rarely uh, work much beyond five and the reason for that is uh, I actually find my, my performance just tails off um, I'm definitely a morning person uh, rather than an afternoon person and if I've had the sort of nightmare deadline situation where I've actually had to work late into the evening I tend to find the following morning I look at it and I think well actually you didn't achieve very much uh, so um, I, certainly if I write no the, the novels later into the evening I look at them the same material first thing in the morning I tend to rewrite it all so I've, I've learnt over time that actually it's a uh, law of diminishing returns and it's best to just stop at five and then just allow your brain to do something different But if you've got uh, a deadline for the day job and you want to write some fiction, which would you do first? Would you start the day with the day job to get it out of the way? Or? The day job always takes precedence, right. always, um, partly because people are relying on me. And um, if you're a freelancer or self-employed, as I am, um, one thing you learn very fast is you're only as good as the last job you did. <laughs> <laughs> so if you produce something second rate, um, just because you happen to have a, you know, a difficult week or whatever, you run the risk that your client goes somewhere else next time. Uh, so always the, the day job takes precedence. So if there's a deadline for that, that will always get done first. 
And basically what happens is that the novels will fill whatever's left. So they're like a bit of a buffer zone, if you like, so they can expand or contract depending on how much time I've got. I've had times when I've been really busy where I've done two or three weeks and not been able to do anything on the novels at all. Um, likewise, over the summer, when it quietens down on the day job, I can it can be the reverse, and I can have a whole couple of weeks where all I'm doing is research, all I'm doing is writing for the novels, and that's that's lovely when that happens. But um, I never I never assume that's going to happen. Okay. <laughs> the nature of the day job means you can get a phone call in the morning and be you know writing something a couple of hours later. So you know I can never really predict it very much. Do you actually have a preference? Would you rather write? all the way through in, a, in, in one long block of time rather than having to fit in? Or does it actually, can, it, can it actually have advantages having to, to scratch around and, in, in, in your day? To... I really like the variety, actually. Um, people have started saying to me recently, oh, wouldn't it be lovely? You'll be able to, soon you'll be able to give up your day job. <laughs> um, and I say to them, well, for a start, I think that's a little bit pie in the sky <laughs> and a little bit premature. Um, but also, actually, I don't think I would. Um, right. Even if I was lucky enough to be earning enough money from the novels, I, I think I would still continue to do the day job. Perhaps I might do a bit less of it, but uh, what I really like about having that, um, it's partly it keeps a different part of your brain working. Um, I have to use a, a much more analytical part of my brain um, for for writing for companies and sometimes some of the subjects I'm writing about are really very interesting mm. and quite demanding and that's that's really really good exercise for the brain talking about the gym earlier well this is the equivalent <laughs> um, but and also the other thing that I often say is that it gives you this wonderful excuse uh, if you've got another job to do um, it gives you this marvellous excuse to put the book to one side put the novel to one side um, and anyone who's ever had any anything like um, writer's block will know that it's actually quite useful to have a very very good excuse to just let it let it alone for a bit just put it to one side and say you know I'm, I absolutely have to do something else now so you, you don't have any guilt because you have to do your day job um, and you can just leave it there and it's true that all those old cliches about just let your brain work work away in the background and don't flog your brain because you'll actually get less out of it if you do that and I've found that time and time again, just by leaving the book to one side for a bit, some of the knotty questions that you might have been wrestling with or a plot point that really wouldn't lie down, suddenly it will actually find its way through. So I'm a, I'm a great believer in, in just a, you know, a variety of different things in your day. Um, you'll actually get, get more done, ironically. <laughs> Do you find you, at that point you're returning to a manuscript as a, as a reader as well as, a, as the author of the manuscript? There's a sort of sense that you're... You're slightly outside of the, the, yes. the words. And... Yeah, if you can leave it for a little bit, then you come back and you, you've almost, in a way, forgotten some of the things you, you wrote. And you can have a nasty or a nice surprise, <laughs> <laughs> depending, on, depending on what you find there. Um, but yes, one of the other things I, I do, I edit and proofread um, as part of my day job. So I actually get paid to do that by other people. So I'm a pretty good editor and proofreader of my own stuff because I apply the same... Um, of discipline to my own writing as I apply to other people's so my my manuscripts tend to be quite uh, neat and tidy by the time they go in <laughs> you're probably quite you were just talking about writer's block Do, is it something you've ever suffered from not once I start writing okay. uh, it's interesting the way that it works with me uh, that there always seems to be two types of writers there are those who have millions of ideas 
and then struggle to actually get them down. You know, the actual process of going from the first word to the 100,000th word is really a struggle for them. And then there's the other end of the scale, the people who have many fewer ideas but actually find the process rather easier. And I'm definitely in that camp. Okay. Um, in that once I've, once I've got a, an idea that's properly worked through, I then do a very detailed synopsis. And I suppose possibly because of the discipline of the day job, I, I'm then normally pretty good at sitting down and just getting on with it. Um, where I sometimes um, have blocks, it's uh, getting an idea to a workable plot. Uh, and that's happened a few times now where I, I, I knew what I wanted to do with, with the, the, the initial idea, if you like. But turning that initial idea then into something that worked as a plot, that had however many chapters in it and came to a conclusion that was satisfying, that was the challenge. And it's happened, it happened both with Tom All Alone's, um, the, the book inspired by Dickens, and with a book uh, inspired by the Shelleys, A Treacherous Likeness. And in both cases, would you believe, this is extraordinary, in both cases, that those ideas were simmering in my head for a good, you know, best part of a year before I actually made that breakthrough moment. And both times that breakthrough moment was on a plane. (laughs) (laughs) I really recommend long-haul flights. I was going to say, is this your excuse for a... Well, it worked brilliantly. It was both times I was on the plane to New Zealand. And I was sitting in the plane, and, you know, it's a 24-hour flight. There are breaks, but basically you're in the air for that amount of time. And I'd read all the books I had in my, my hand luggage. I didn't want to watch any more of the films. I literally had nothing I could do. You know, you can't, you can't go on the internet or anything, or your phone or Twitter. Or, so I was just sitting there, you know, li- literally sitting there. And I don't think that ever happens to me ever in my life, but it obviously happens in planes for those very, you know, specific technical reasons. And, and in both times, I, you know, I just sat there for a bit and then suddenly the idea worked. It was almost as if my poor brain just needed a bit of downtime um, to, to allow it to just work through these challenges and these plots. So I think next time I have that problem, I'm going to go back to New Zealand. Exactly. You should work for the New Zealand. Um, so um, I've got a couple of, uh, of the, 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 the sort of quick, quick questions. So you, early or late doesn't really apply, but when you like to work, it's, it's fitting it in. Yeah, I'm mornings, not, not evenings, definitely. Are you a procrastinator... Um, it sounds like a procrastinator before the process, but once you actually start, do you find yourself suddenly cleaning? Um, oh, a displacement activity. Yeah. Um, it, sometimes when I'm trying to get the idea to work, yes, uh, and and it's partly what I said earlier about let your brain have it time on its own without you sort of standing over it as it goes. Okay. Um, so sometimes yes, um, when I'm when I'm trying to get the idea to work, but normally I am I am pretty um, boringly diligent by the time I'm actually writing um, words onto a you know onto a screen. Do you prefer noise, music of some sort, or does it need to be complete silence? I often have music, actually, yeah. Is um, that for, does it have to be sort of for atmospherics, or...? No, there's never usually a relationship with the kind of music and okay. what I'm writing, no. I know some writers do do that, and I can see certain situations where that might be quite helpful, but it's never happened so far for me. Do you mind words? I mean, or is it classical music or something without any... Uh... No, I don't mind words. No, I'm quite, I'm quite good at um, dealing with things in the background. Do you ever use um, an internet program like Freedom to block off the internet, or are you quite, are you quite disciplined about being able to work on the, the screen without uh, having to check Facebook or Twitter or? Um... 
Um, no, I'm fine with that. Actually. Okay. I see Twitter as my, my um, coffee machine. <laughs> uh, so it's just like when you're at work, you know, you can work for a certain amount of time and say, oh, I'm going to go and get a coffee now. And I really see it that way. And because I work at home, um, therefore I'm on my own, apart from the cats, um, uh, Twitter is actually really nice because it's a way of just, you can just plug in um, for a few minutes and you know, your friends are there. It is like a coffee machine. You can say hello to your friends. You can share something funny. Um, and, and then you can go back and, and get more done. So for me, it it works brilliantly, Um, though I I do know what people say when they say it can eat the whole day if you let it. And yeah, it it could because it it is fun, but um, it, it works well for me. How about pen or computer as or typewriter? Should you wish to be um, old school? Computer, I can't. Straight remember, on. Yeah, I can't remember the last time I wrote anything longhand. In fact, I can remember the last time I wrote anything longhand. I went back to it and couldn't read it myself. Okay. So, <laughs> so that really didn't work. And do you and do you tend to write through and edit later, or do you edit, is, do, is there a period of the day that you you give over to, to editing what what you've uh, finished that day? I edit the following morning what I did the night before. So you sleep on it? And... Yeah, so it's like sort of three steps forward, two steps back sort of idea. So I'll write during the day and then I'll, I'll go back and then you're right, sleeping on it. You'll, you'll often notice first thing, oh yes, no, that doesn't quite work or whatever. So yeah, and then it's a good way to get you back into the flow as well. Okay. So like taking a few steps back and then, you know, and then going forwards again, it, it, it's actually helpful. Okay. And do you have any sort of writerly um, authorial superstitions? Do you need a sort of, do you need a sort of a gonk on your desk or a? Um, well, as you can see, we're sitting by my desk. I don't have any gonks. Um. Is, is this, so is this desk that's in front of us? Um, yeah, it's minimal. Much. Yeah, I am. I'm quite minimalist in that sense. I don't have any particular superstitions that, at least, I'm, I'm aware of. Anyway. Okay. No, To, to rewind briefly to um, your background, and did it, is being a writer something that you always wanted to do, or is this? Is it because I know you started to write fiction not necessarily late in life at all, um, but later than, <laughs> yeah. than than some. But mm. is it something that that was a an ambition or or a sort of a, a dream? I believe the um, the youngsters are calling yes, it. Yes, probably that is the word. Um, I think I well, I did English at university, so yes, the. Uh, Sort of the power of literature, the the power of prose, is something that's um, been a, a sort of guiding uh, part of my life, really. Um, and I suppose at that stage, I always thought how wonderful it would be to write a novel and you know to see a book with your own name on the front of it. I always used to imagine what an amazing moment that would be, but I never really did anything about it. I mean, a lot of people start writing in their twenties and. Um, you know, some people are lucky enough to get published and, and do very well at that age. I must admit, I never really had a burning idea at that at that age. Uh, I never thought of something particular I wanted to, to say, wanted to write about. Though the, the idea of being a writer was still something that I saw as a, sort of like a golden dream and what a marvellous thing that would be. Uh, but it wasn't until much later on, until I went, until I went freelance and talking earlier about the day job, I went freelance in 2000 and I had done before that um, jobs that were very intensive and involved lots of long hours and working at weekends sometimes. So I don't think even if I'd wanted to, I could have been a writer then because I simply weren't enough hours (laughs) in the day. And by the time I got home, I was just flat out exhausted, so it would never have worked. Um, But um, once I went freelance, and particularly that early stage, sort of building up a client base and um, getting established, I had quite a lot of time on my hands. 
so that was when I started doing it. Um, mm-hmm. I started to to actually try to write, and you have those first few attempts, and you realise quite how hard it is. <laughs> um, and dialogue—that's that's the thing that got me. Uh, how hard dialogue is to get right. You think it was really easy, wouldn't you? But no, no, it's actually. What's the challenge? What's the we well, think you should be able to just take a, a tape recorder like we're using now and just tape record a conversation and then just write down the transcript and that would be dialogue. But oh, no, 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 no. Um, that doesn't work at all. Uh, it's actually very hard to craft something that looks spontaneous. You know, it's one of those sort of oxymorons. It's got to look like something completely natural that people would say. Uh, but actually achieving that is hard craft yeah so yeah if, if you just transcribe this conversation yeah, I, it, I know this when i transcribe interviews it's terrifying how weirdly we speak yeah we, yeah exactly we, we, we speak in half sentences and a word that suddenly appears and then doesn't actually connect with any other words and because you you have um <coughs> you know, visual contact usually with the person you're talking to no obviously on the phone you don't um, you can actually cope with that sort of strange <laughs> staccato uh, way that most conversations go, but um, you can't do that on paper. It just looks yeah. absolutely peculiar. But you've got to fake the spontaneity. You've got to find a way of doing it so it does look like it could be a conversation. Um, and, and to actually do that well, I, I found really hard. That was one of the things that took me longest to learn. I used to have this slightly strange thing when I... For a long time, when I interview people, it was almost superstitious that I would transcribe the interviews exactly. And so, when you just said no, 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 I would actually transcribe all of them. <laughs> and you do get this strange sense of how we talk. I was wondering, you said just now that a great ambition to see your name on a novel in a mm-hmm. bookshop. Mm-hmm. Did you have any sense in those when you were studying or before of what a writer's life might entail? I mean, you've you've written about mm-hmm. the Shelleys, um, uh, the Wollstonecrafts, the Godwins mm-hmm. um, in a treacherous likeness, um, who led almost a sort of template of a glamorous fraught, emotionally sort of promiscuous and promiscuous in lots of other ways, um, life. Did, did you have a sense of what a writer's life might might be? Or was it some more Jane Austen or more uh, Ernest <laughs> Hemingway? Or? Yes, Jane Austen and her little piece of ivory too, yeah. which is wide, um, <laughs> and hiding it under the uh, the blotter when people came in. I always, always think that's terribly sweet. Um, I, I never thought I would have a glamorous life being a writer. And funnily enough, I don't. Um, yes, uh, I think one of the things that some people find surprising is how much hard work there is in it. And I think it's not just um, the the hard yards of sitting at a computer uh, screen for a long time, because 100,000 odd words takes a long time to do, uh, however talented you are. Um, but it's also everything else that's around it, especially now, because uh, you are expected to support the promotion of your books Mm. and that is a very time intensive um, thing to do you know going to um, book signings or festivals and things like that is huge fun and I absolutely love doing it but it's a lot of time Mm. Um, likewise I I write a lot of pieces um, that uh, are supporting the books so might go in newspapers or on websites or whatever and uh, while I love doing it, it, again, it's really hard work and you have to do good pieces. You can't just dash something off for, for a, you know, a newspaper. They, they, they won't use it if it's, if it's not good, good, good enough quality. So all of this stuff takes time and um, it's, all, you know, it's all, all, all requiring you to be at the top of your game. 
all of it. You can't do any of that promotional stuff unless you're at the top of your game because you've got, if you're doing a talk, you've got to really do a good one. And if you're writing a piece for The Guardian, you've got really got to do a good one. So, you know, it's all requiring you to really be, you know, working very, A, very hard and B, very well. So I think a lot of people don't realise that when they, when they think, oh, wouldn't it be great to write a novel? Because writing a novel is just the start. <laughs> <laughs> Does it come as a, a slight shock then that, that you're... Well, you're four books into, including your academic book, mm. um, Clarissa's Painter. Yes. So you're four books into your writing career. Is it, is it a long way away from any sort of glamorised, gl- glamorous ideas of, of a writer's <laughs> life? Um, I mean, there are, there are things that I've done which I've really loved doing, um, which, which are sort of perfect examples of how much you can enjoy your life as a writer. Um, you know, I, I did a talk last week at the National Portrait Gallery where I was actually standing in front of the portraits of Mary Shelley and Shelley and Lord Byron and had a whole packed room of people who just wanted to know about these fascinating mm. historical characters. And that was just fabulous. You know, it doesn't get any better than that. So it's a really wonderful thing uh, to be able to do. And I've been a couple of other events like that that I've spoken at, which I've also enjoyed you know, a great deal. So, um you know, given that I'm not hugely famous and, um, you know, being jetted around the world doing doing book tours, um, there are still aspects of being a writer that are, you know, you, you really, if you don't enjoy that, then you'll never enjoy anything. Can we just ask, can I just rewind right to the beginning um, and just ask where, just a bit, a bit about your, your sort of upbringing and background. Where, where were you? Where were you born and, and, and raised? Ah, North London, Ricelip, <laughs> as in Tropic of Ricelip. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, yes, yeah, so that's that's where. I, no, my family. Uh, so my sort of going back a few generations are actually Deptford. Okay. Um, my great great something um, grandfather had a pub in Deptford, which um, playwrights being stabbed outside. No, I think no, I think this is more Victorian. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I always I had this sort of nice thought that Charles Dickens might have wandered past. Um, one of these days, I'll have to go through his papers and see if I can find a reference to the steam packet. Apparently, that's what it was called. This pub. Um, what did your own parents? My own parents. Um, my mother was a school secretary and my father worked in local government. Okay. Um, so, yes, we weren't a, we weren't a literary house uh, at all. Um, my, the, my parents hadn't been to university or anything like that, so it was, it was quite a sort of different sort of um, uh, path in life that I, I wanted to have in terms of um, you know, going to university and doing, doing something a bit different. Was studying English and maybe you know even however latent your literary ambitions were was was that see, was that viewed as in a supportive way or was that you said it's slightly against the grain of, of your family or was yeah they, they were very keen that I should go to college and, and that was uh, that was um, definitely something that they thought was a good idea I suppose it's just that they had no experience of it themselves um, so it was it was a you know it was ploughing a new furrow really um, in terms of, of sort of moving into a different type of life I suppose um, but yeah I, I must admit I think it goes back to when I was about 13 or 14 um, we went on a family trip to Oxford you know one of those kids in the back type of family trips um, and I just fell in love with Oxford with Oxford um, just I remember just walking around thinking I didn't know a place as beautiful as this actually <laughs> existed you know, I think I must have had a very sheltered life 
Um, but I just looked at it and thought, oh my God, you could actually come and be a student here. And uh, I was just completely overwhelmed by, by it. And um, then I just, I just got this burning ambition at that point to see if I could do that. And did you know you wanted to study... Uh, literature and um, uh, yes, I mean, I was that was the subject I was best at even by that age, so that was the natural one to to go for. And I had a very inspirational um, English teacher when I was about twelve. I think a lot of people who end <laughs> up doing English or end up being writers have one of those, and I've got one of those. I've tried to track her down actually, because <laughs> um, you know on the internet now you can pretty much find anybody, but she has a very common surname, and I don't know where she lives anymore. So sadly, I haven't found her. Though I have found the absolutely delightful lady who taught me Mansfield Park (laughs) for A-level and um, that one came back round again didn't it (laughs) so that's been a delight because we've we've reconnected and uh, she's read all the other books since then and and I I suppose if you're an English teacher uh, one of life's great joys must be if one of your pupils turns out to be a writer so I think she's she's quite chuffed what were the books that you were you were reading that, that inspired this love? I mean, you, you, your novels were all, to some extent, novels about other novels or novels about mm. p- um, poets, in the case of Treacherous Lightness. Are those the sorts of books? Is Austin Dickens, are those the... Yes, they're the things I love. Um, yes, they, funnily enough, I mean, the Mansfield Park thing does go back to A-level. I know I was just joking about it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and now obviously, when you do A-level uh, on, on any particular book, you end up knowing it incredibly well. Um, and indeed you end up with large chunks of it memorised yeah, <laughs> and I still have chunks of Mansell Park in my head um, but it's not just that it's partly also because that particular book is um, rightly seen as uh, Austen's problem child and I remember even at 18 reading it and thinking hang on there's another book trying to get out here you know, <laughs> there's, sort of a, there's a Pride and Prejudice version of Mansell Park that's in here somewhere and Jane Austen is refusing to write it <laughs> for some reason she is refusing to write it she's refusing to make Mary Crawford the heroine I don't know why she's, you know, so it, was, it was absolutely fascinating I just couldn't understand what was, what was you know, going on in Jane Austen's head um, and I, I sort of conceived this idea a long long time ago that there was this other book in there this lighter a funnier book um, so when I actually first started it wasn't the first book I started to write um, myself and I tried to be a writer but it was something that was in my head very early on that I could do something with Mansfield Park um, and then I just got this um, it's very strange I still have the email actually I was writing an email to my agent <laughs> 2008 uh, writing an email to him and, and he'd asked me what, uh, what I was working on because I wasn't published then and I gave him a few things that I had been thinking over. And then suddenly it came, literally came into my head, the title, Murder at Mansfield Park. <laughs> As I was writing the email, I still have the email. So I said, what do you think, this idea, Murder, Murder at Mansfield Park? And he pinged me an email back almost instantaneously and said, it's a great idea, but can you pull it off? Because the basic premise of that book is that it had to be written like Jane Austen. So that was the challenge. Could I actually do a sustained piece of pastiche of Jane Austen that sounded like her? Um, And that was an absolute joy to do. Um, I absolutely loved doing that. And then the the extra little wrinkle, of course, is then to turn it into an Agatha Christie-style murder mystery, which is the murder happens about halfway through the book. Uh, and I'm very proud. I did actually get there before P.D. James. I was going to say, do you think P.D. James was having the same? Can you pull this uh, off, P.D.? Well, um, I was there 18 months before her, so I don't know when she started doing hers. But uh, no, it was, it was absolutely a delight. And I spent a huge amount of time with that book. Um, 
on the language actually because okay. um, the, the subsequent two books have required research of a different kind more sort of historical research but with the Austen book it was more about actually getting the vocabulary right because I've always been a bit of a perfectionist in lots of ways and particularly if you're going to take on something like that you've got to do it properly especially if you have any sort of background in English literature you can't, you can't just sort of dash something like that off so I spent a lot of time just checking my vocabulary, checking the context in which words were used. Um, it was a fascinating activity in its own right, actually, just to see how the English language has shifted in that 200 years, um, between how words, some words in any way, were being used in Jane Austen's time, um, or not indeed existing at all, uh, and how they now appear. Is there a particular example? I mean, I... There is one wonderful example. On. My favourite example um, is that at one point... I wanted my detective, so this is the back end of the book, wanted my detective to refer to Mary Crawford, in fact, uh, as she appears in my book, as intriguing in both senses of the word, ah. i.e. intriguing, fascinating, intriguing, plotting. Um, so I thought, oh, this is a fantastic sentence, I love it, so bah, but I better check. So I went and checked, and intriguing plotting is fine, because that's the uh, original meaning of the word. Intriguing, fascinating is 1911. Good Lord. 1909. 1909. What happened in 1909? <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, but uh, that, it's fascinating, isn't it? The, 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 in itself, fascinating. Uh, that the, the language yes. has has um, has changed so much in that very sort of mm. last period. Uh, so I couldn't have it, you know, because being a perfectionist, um, I thought, well, no, I, I can't use that sentence because he would never have said that. He would never have used intriguing in that way. So even though 99.99% of people reading the book wouldn't have known or cared if they did, I knew. That would bother you. And I cared, so I couldn't do it. Because yeah. there have been lots of these mashups, and there were zombies yeah. in Pride and Prejudice and yeah. vampires in Mansfield Park, no doubt. Um, and people don't really care, but actually that, there is something sort of... An, there's something pleasurably annoying about them, but there's also something just annoying about these books. I think what it is is if you... And you can get re- you can get away with one or two little things like that, or, or just you might, there might be one that I've overlooked in in the book that I just didn't notice at the time. But if you do it all the time, if you allow that sort of um, modern um, terminology to creep in over the period of a whole book, it will actually undermine the authenticity mm. of it. Uh, and even if people don't know each word that you've got wrong, they'll just get a general sense that it's not quite sounding right. So, um, from my point of view, the, the cure for that is to try not to do it at all. Uh, but it was, I mean, heaven um, sent to have all the technology these days, because I just downloaded all her books. Okay. <laughs> and you can do a word search in 30 seconds. But can you imagine doing that 20 years ago? That's true. You know, you'd go crazy. You'd, you know, you'd have to read all, each book trying to find each word. I mean, it would, just, it would drive you mad. <laughs>